So, just sort of... Luna? You are not a guest this week. I give you so much attention, as does Nicole. You turn me down for tummy time. This is not the time to demand things. Hey, babe. Yeah, babe? Remember that time we watched It Follows? You mean the movie about the killer sex demon? Sex demon. It's the name of my punk band. Nice. Yeah. That's the wrong episode, though. That was for Green Room. Oh, shit. Yeah. But, oh, well. Oh, well. Anyway, what's up, babes? It's Nicole. It's Topher. My glasses are broken. Poor thing. They it fell was a, right off my fucking face. It's a tragedy. It, we're, we're, we're not having a great day so far. But Didn't win tequila. Glasses broke. It's okay, though. You know, such is quarantine. Yeah, today, so we're going to talk about It Follows. What year was this movie made? Came it's, out, I guess. So the movie debuted in 2014 at the Cannes Film Festival. Mm-hmm. Radius TWC is known for like small film distribution. Mm-hmm. They do a lot of indie film distributions. So they picked it up and did a limited release in mid-March of 2015. And then it got a wider release later that month. Nice. Yeah. When I say small budget, I mean $2 million. So $2 not, million? Yeah. Well, not small, small. Mm-hmm. You know, we've definitely covered smaller ones, but this is not by any means as big a budget as say like the vitch or something like that yeah that surprises me actually well when you look at it it was definitely sort of everybody's first or second go well that's not entirely true but yeah but we're gonna get into who made this thing and then we're gonna talk about the plot mm-hmm. and then we're going to do a little bit of movie analysis just in case this is your first time tuning in to horror babes yeah we're just gonna talk about some themes and women and how they're treated in this film and how the men are treated or how the men treat the women really yeah and yeah so who the heck made this thing and who was in it so this is the second feature from writer director david robert mitchell Mm -hmm. he has had a little more success after this but he's definitely one of those indie filmmakers who only makes like four films his first one was uh the sleepover one right yeah myth of the american sleepover that's right that's right 2010 that was his feature debut yeah. Uh, then he did this, 2014, and his most recent sort of bigger named film was Under the Silver Lake. Okay. That was like the, it's described as a postmodern noir comedy drama. Mm-hmm. But it had Andrew Garfield in it. It had a couple other people from this in it. Cool. Uh, it was a cool, it's a cool little film for sure. I think he's got another thing in the works, but no one's totally. Yeah. There's not a lot of information on that at the moment. But yeah, he is from Michigan. Which is, you know. No, I couldn't tell by all the Michigan porn in this. <laughs> yeah, it's significant Michigan porn. But it's, yeah, he's from Clawson, which is like greater Detroit area. Yeah, he, he clearly, clearly loves Detroit. Which it was pretty. It was a pretty movie. You know, um, yeah. It's funny how many horror filmmakers do come from Detroit, really. Because huh. Sam Raimi, also oh. Detroit. Yeah, there's a lot of people who come out of like Michigan State, Western Michigan University. I didn't know that because I don't know their life. <laughs> That's fair. I just sit here and, on the computer and look things up all the time. That's true. So who was in it? Let's see. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we have Micah Monroe as our protagonist, Jay Height. Who we, is um, last seen dating Joe Keery, right? That's right. You told yeah. me that. Which who knows since we're all in quarantine, but <laughs> last seen... She was dating him. <laughs> Funny how they both got their breaks in big eighties throwback. I ship them. I think it's a I think it's a great match. Works for me. I hope they're doing well. Yeah. I think they they look like a really cute couple. <laughs> it matches, yeah. Yeah. I don't know how to say anybody's name. We've established that on this pod- podcast, but Lily Seep or Sepe. 
Okay. S-E-P-E is okay. her last name. As her little sister, Kelly. Keir Gilchrist, who's probably the best known actor in this. Mm-hmm. He was, he's currently in Atypical, but he's been in a number of other indie projects as well. He plays Paul, right? Yeah. Okay. The fuck, fucking Paul. The sex opportunist. Sex pest. <laughs> Olivia Lucardi as Yara, the f- other friend. Jake Wary as Hugh slash Jeff. And Daniel Zavato as Greg Hannigan. That's our main cast of people yeah it's a pretty it's a pretty small cast yeah we have a couple moms in here yeah but they have all of three lines total right i think the height mrs height only has i think two lines that's debbie williams yeah and greg's mom has one line maybe two in an exchange with mrs height at the like breakfast table or whatever yeah coffee table whatever they're doing yeah just like any other teenage movie that revolves around sex the parents are a little bit absent like that significantly is significantly so that is a through line which makes sense because teenagers Definitely. who want to have sex want nothing to do with their parents most of the time <laughs> so it's pretty realistic yeah other than that we had music from disaster piece mm-hmm Richard Freeland, but he's he's known as Disasterpiece. I knew him from before this because he's a pretty popular chip tune artist, which is like video What's game. That? It's like video game type electronica. Okay. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of beeps and boops and blips. Fun. That are all inspired by like eight bit music, essentially like the music of video games from the eighties. Okay. Yeah. I'd be I'd be curious to listen to that. Definitely. Um, yeah. I think this was his first score that he ever did like feature film score you know what it actually now that you say that about the the chip chip tunes right I, I can totally see that and it's kind of cool because this whole and we'll talk more about this later but this whole film you can definitely tell that he's a fan of john carpenter and oh, for sure. especially in the music direction because it does seem like this was very director heavy yes feels like a very director driven movie it does because it's all cohesive and i don't Mm -hmm. mean that i don't mean that it the director always has to have a heavy hand in something sometimes when people you know work have worked on several films together they can just be like okay we work so well together or i just know this guy's style and i know what his vision is for the movie and i know what to do but in this case it kind of really feels like he had like it was very hands-on which is great Especially when you are an emerging director, obviously. Mm-hmm. But, Put your stamp on it, for sure. Yeah, but I can totally tell that this guy was directed to kind of go the Carpenter route, but then he also kind of threw in some chiptunes. Yeah. Like, like, you can hear it. Like, it, it, it sounds Carpenter-influenced, but it's got its own little kind of, like, update. Would you call it Carpenter in an arcade? Yeah. Yeah. Actually. That's what I kept thinking during the movie when I was watching it again. So that's actually, that's really cool that like, I, you know, I'm a nerd. I love that stuff. (laughs) Um, I love it when two musical tastes can come together and create something cool that, you know, makes us think John Carpenter in in an arcade. Like, it's so cool. Other than that, he's done two major indie video game scores, Mm -hmm. soundtracks. He did Fez, which is a really cool little like 8-bit type game it's 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 hard to describe but it's really cool it's like a like a platformer almost but you know it doesn't have anything to do with that 70s show it's zero as far as i know and (laughs) probably good for that but yeah probably for the best (laughs) and then he did hyperlight drifters soundtrack and that game was like blew up uh, a lot of games journalism because everybody just was raving over this little indie game Mm -hmm. that you could get for like 10 15 bucks or something like that 
he's clearly very talented and has a unique spin on things. So oh, for sure, yeah. Who did the cinematography? Because that also was very John Carpenter, yeah. but but also unique. Like it was a nice homage. Exactly. <laughs> So the cinematographer here is one we're going to be talking about a good amount in the months to come and in the future of this podcast, I would imagine, for projects he hasn't even done yet. Uh, his name's Mike Giolakis. Mm-hmm. Also went to Florida State like David Robert Mitchell, the director, did. Yes. So he is this really awesome, just incredible photographer. He started off just making no-budget films, right? Mm-hmm. So he did a couple in Philly, then he moved to New York and was working here. He did a, a shit ton of commercial work for IBM and Samsung. Okay. Shooting all of their work. And then he decided that he just, like, didn't want to really do the commercial route anymore. And so he moves to L.A. right before the writer's strike mm. in uh, 07, 08. And just started working in lighting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, wasn't doing DP stuff at all. So that he could learn how to problem solve through. Because, yeah. like, there wasn't a lot of DP work because of the writer's strike. Yeah. So what he decided instead was like, well, I need to learn how to do lighting work because that's half the work of cinematography. So why don't I just go and learn these strategies and problem solving techniques from somewhere else? I respect that. Yeah. I love someone who learns how to, you know, not master, but at least handle a second craft Mm -hmm. to inform their mastery of another craft. Totally. I really, really respect that. I absolutely respect that. It's almost like learning to draw before you learn to paint, right? Yeah. You have to know form before you can know figure. For sure. And so he does that. That's I think awesome. That's really cool. I thought that was really cool about him. Well, and it shows, too. Yeah. You know, he's great. No, it clearly shows. Uh, the, Very well the done. The light in this film is really well done. Yeah. So, so you're talking about uh, being director-driven. director, director driven. Mm-hmm. So David Robert Mitchell says, okay, here's the visual references we want. We want all the films of John Carpenter. <laughs> yeah. Paris, Texas, which is another gorgeous movie. Mm-hmm. Blue Velvet, same. Right. And Rear Window. Cool. Along with a, a photographer who we'll g- dig into a little bit more in the actual, when we actually talk a little bit more about this. But This film nods at John Carpenter because you could argue that the monster in this is very similar to Michael Myers. You could argue, arguably say that the slow and steady monster yeah it, it, it's very similar to it follows and also the thing yeah because transitioning don't know who it's going to look like all that yeah. exactly exactly not knowing what it's going to look like how it's going to manifest that sort of thing and i think i think the reason that david robert mitchell wanted to really be in on every aspect of this mm-hmm. in the way that he was is because the whole idea that this came from was a dream yes that he had about something following him, but not really knowing what it was, but it was like a slow and steady yeah. build the tension sort of thing. And then slowly over the years started to develop that. So I think there was just a very like, explaining the aesthetics of a dream is very difficult. So I understand why you would want to have like a heavy hand on like how things look and how how they're being presented and all of that, because you might be the only one who can really connect that. Yeah. No, I totally get that. I've, I've definitely worked on projects where, well, fuck, like the, this movie I was in 11 years ago before I stopped being an actor. Uh, it's a, a student film that we shot with a bunch of friends, uh, but it was all done by the guy who wrote, directed, mm-hmm. I guess, adapted the script, directed it, shot most of it. I mean, he shot 95% of the movie. Yeah. Hell, and when he wasn't shooting, he worked boom. Mm-hmm. Like, all this shit, right? Yeah. And 
we would always make fun of him because he didn't like to direct so much with words. He tended to direct with arm movements and actions because he had he'd always tripped over his words. Mm-hmm. But he would like have a lot of trouble expressing himself verbally. Yeah. So he would use like haptic language, and we all just learned how to read that. And so it was that sort of like it was had it was all his vision. And we were just there to express it. But even when I was working the camera or if I was running lights. Well, and art can be so hard to put into words in general, even if you feel like you, even if you've written a freaking essay on it, to be able to convey that to people. Yeah. Just because they, they everyone has, you know, different references in their brain. That's mm-hmm. why like mood boards are so helpful. Yeah. And just, you know, kind of trying to tie it all in together, which is probably why he decided to be like, okay, think carpenter yeah with like my essence on it sort of yeah you know put some stank on some carpenter yeah like <laughs> update it and do do all this yeah. stuff because if it ain't broke you know don't fix it just sure. maybe update it to the times and that's what he did because i wouldn't say that he tried to fix anything it just was like you know yeah to put my own swing on it but yeah we'll dive more into the cinematography later too i've got yeah. plenty more to say about it uh the last couple things about uh, Mike Giolakis is that he yeah. well just about just the cinematographer himself is that he also shot John Dies at the End oh yeah which cool. is a really cool looking movie nice and then he shot Split for M. Night Shyamalan he's shot again with Mitchell for Under the Silver Lake he's done he did Glass He and he also shot Us he shot Us? yeah damn okay. not you and me but the movie Us by Jordan Peele <laughs> been shot so yeah, yeah, he's he's definitely someone that people have quickly recognized. And so everybody who worked on this was pretty young. Mm-hmm. Giolakis is now 37, so he would have been in his early 30s when he made this. Mitchell and Disasterpiece are both, were both in their late 20s. Yeah. So no one was, like, this is a pretty young film across the board. And it definitely comes across that way. Yeah, it and, um, feels... It feels, yeah. it feels very young, and that's not a bad thing. There are pros and cons to that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and, and I'll kind of I'll talk about that more after the plot. Yeah. Uh, but speaking of, unless you have any other production notes, just the last is just the budget and box office because we tend to do that. Yeah. So shot for Give two million, me. like I said. Yeah. And brought back twenty three point three. Great. Yeah. Bomb. I mean, twelve times the budget back. That's yeah. really solid. Yeah. For a movie this size and for this small of a distribution, fuck yeah. Cool. All right, let's get into plot, and I'm gonna try my hardest not to confuse it with teeth which we also watched last night yeah we did a little double feature of uh and they're somewhat similar sex horror yeah sex horror (laughs) basically so let's do the plot and i will try i will try to not mix my blonde protagonist (laughs) stuff yeah we start off with a horror right out the gate and i i tend to love that that we start with the horror we did this with mom and dad Mm -hmm. Uh, we've most of the movies that i really enjoy we just were talking about we were just talking about the exorcism of Emily Rose. Yeah. And that kicks off right away with the horror, even though that movie sucks. It's a it's a very common way to start it off, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah. you, you get like a little taste. It's like an appetizer. Yeah, jumping in. An hors d'oeuvre, of, if you will. Yeah. You get like a little taste and then you're hungry for more. <laughs> I just never mind starting off in Medias Race. I don't need every movie to start off with world building you know yeah well but it think, sets the tone think of, yeah think about why people watch horror films what are their reasons they want excitement they want to be scared shitless like people like that like it's mm-hmm. like it's like their roller coaster so it, there there is a place for the slow burn 
but mm-hmm. a lot of people just up top want to want to be like thrilled and just yeah. be like all right what i have so many questions let's answer <laughs> them that like i'm definitely one of those people yeah so the, the opening shot is basically starting off in the third act of halloween oh yeah because we have a young woman running out of a house screaming half dressed no shoot or she has heels on but that cracked me up yeah every time i'm just like God. i'm like work <laughs> just like <laughs> running in those heels so she runs out in the middle of the night half dressed and screaming yeah and gets in a car takes off the next shot we see is her on the shores of some oh great lake god great gore yeah we're but just like about... she's sitting on the phone talking to her dad in the headlights of her car and the next morning she is oh it just is a hard god. cut and she is in so many disordered dismembered and like mutilated which now that I, after you've seen the movie, now that you know how this thing kills people, I still have so many questions. How did she get in that unbelievably contorted, broken yeah. state, you know? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. So <laughs> Sex a- sent me to the ER. <laughs> Straight to the grave, more like. Oh my fucking God, she fucking dead. She needs some milk. <laughs> That's what you come to this podcast for, right? Uh, yeah. So now we see, we meet Jay. We don't know what time it, we don't know how much longer it is, but it's daytime now. Jay is hanging out in her above ground pool. We don't even know when this is set. That's never no, explicit. This is, yeah, we'll talk about that too. This even is the a film fashion. set out of time. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So Jay goes for a little swim in her above ground pool. Her sister comes out and it's like, hey, you hanging out tonight? She goes, no, I've got a date. She's going out with Hugh. Her sister likes him. Hugh gets freaked out while they're on this date at the movie theater yes because they're playing this little their little game that jay teaches him that her sister and her play it's a pretty it's a cute game i like it yeah we'll start playing it yeah it's so so the game is is that you're supposed if you're in like a semi-crowded room like a movie theater or a mm-hmm. movie theater lobby or whatever one person is supposed to pick out of the crowd who they would want to uh trade places with and the other person gets two guesses mm-hmm. and her date chooses like the little kid with his dad and his mom yeah because he's like you know what it, what would it you know what it would l- be like to be young again or whatever and she's like dude you're not that old you're 21 but like <laughs> but also now that we know that he's going through all this like it, it he wishes on it. he wishes he could go back in time basically and yeah. write some wrongs or whatever is basically what it's trying to I think tell that's, us yeah <laughs> so then it's her turn to play the game in the movie theater, like right. pick. And so he's looking, he's turned around and he's looking and then he kind of gets like this horrified look on his face and he asks her if he, if she can see some girl in like a yellow dress. Right. And she's like, what? what? Uh, no, like, what are you talking about? And then he, he all of a sudden is like, we got to go. Yeah. I got to go. I just, uh, and couldn't get out of there fast enough. No. And she's kind of like, what the fuck is going on? So she on? thinks it's an ex. Yeah. But they end yeah. up just like at a diner hanging out. Jay's talking with her sister the next day, thinks it's super weird, but she's going out again with him that night. God, can we talk about her first date dress, though? Or first date of this film. It's not yeah. their first date. But she's wearing this, like, it looks like an Easter dress that my mother would have put me in when I was, like, seven. It's, like, pink. Yeah, it's, like, a pale blush pink with, and like, it's, a floral lace it's over it. It's very virginal. Yes. Like... But then she's wearing, like, fucking, like, those puka shells, like, puka shell necklace. And then these, like, weird... Huge boots. Huge boots that come up to, like, uh, almost her her knee. knee. And they're, like, these weird brown Suede, yeah. It's a very strange outfit. And it's so strange that I feel like it's got to be intentional somewhere. And the only way that I can pinpoint it is, like, the virginal part. Like, she looks... 
Right. It makes her look young that she doesn't really know how to put an outfit Yeah, she dresses like an 18-year-old trying to go on a date. Yeah, and like, oh, God, that I dress. I can definitely see of like a high school girlfriend of mine putting that on or something like that. It's pretty rough. Not as rough as Teeth's um, fashion, though. No. That shit is... Completely different era, though. No, I know. Almost 10 years apart. I know, but still. So, all right, yeah. So they go on the date again, um, and Hugh and Jay end up having sex in the back of his car. Which is you know what it's one of the few pluses of actually like growing up in the suburbs as as opposed to the city if you don't want to go if you don't want to go back to your mom and dad's house you have a car true and you can just go park it wherever like i definitely did that growing up because Mm -hmm. who's who's like i didn't have like one of those like cool basements where you know you can just kind of go in and you would know if someone was coming right so that's definitely one of the benefits to growing up in somewhere like I know that Michigan, Detroit is like a city. It's a major city, yeah. It's a major city, but I get you. It's the benefit of not growing up in New York City. I said the city, but I realize right. that that's not PC. <laughs> whatever, it's the only city worth it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I I grew up in Atlanta. I love that city too. She's not kidding. Um, but what I what I mean to say is that it is the plus of not growing up in New York City. Definitely. Because I don't even know how kids do it here. Do they just, are they just open and honest with their parents and then just go in their bedroom and and do the deed? I'm not here to find out. No, me either. I don't want to know. But when I saw that car scene, I got very nostalgic. Fair. I've done that. (laughs) You know? Yeah, I definitely did a lot of uh, quote unquote parking. Mm Mm-hmm. So anyway. They have sex. Yes. All (laughs) that fucking roundabout trail. So Hugh and Jay have sex in the back of the car. She's having this really sweet memory, like sort of reminiscence with him. And he climbs on top of her and it's sweet for a second. You think he's getting like another beer or whatever. And then he chloroforms her. Chloroform. She wakes up tied to a wheelchair. I'm assuming it was just under the bridge, but like. Or she, or he brought it with him. Oh, that's really creepy. Yeah. That's even worse. Yeah. There's a lot that's really, really creepy about Hugh. Everything really. So, apparently it's the Packard plant that they're at. I just read that the other day. Okay. Yeah. So, no idea what she's tied up means. to a wheelchair, he, and he starts explaining what's happening to her. And that is, there is a sex demon that will haunt her for the rest of her life. And it will always walk, never run, in a straight line, straight towards you forever. If you have sex with someone, it passes it down the line. You further, you build another link in the chain, essentially. And it won't come for you until that person dies. A.K.A. this movie is an allegory for STIs. Correct. So we got this creepy-ass lady walking towards Jay. And she's just all out of sorts, obviously. I mean, as to what just happened to her. And she's screaming. She's like, that's the thing. That's it. That's the, that is the. That's what you look for. Yeah. (laughs) Look for naked ladies following you. So he drives her back home. Her friends and sister are playing cards on the porch and drinking. And he just, like, rolls up, drops her in the street without her dress on or her boots and scoots off. Did he ever really love her? Who can say? So, yeah, she's just, like, sit there, sit, sitting there in the middle of the street, just, like, crumpled and crying. And I noted this last night that the way she gets up is very, like, the bodywork of it is very demonic looking. Mm-hmm. Where it's kind of, like, the way she gets up was really cool physical work because it's almost like how you would direct someone to move like a demon or a possessed character right right it's very like limmy and i just thought that was a cool thing that they 
did there. It was a nice bit of direction there. No, that is cool because it's not like an overt possession or haunting or, you know, like yeah. like what you were saying. But it does, it's just a nice touch that it signals that she is now haunted, mm-hmm. right? Something has changed, I exactly, guess. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So she talks to the cops and there's the typical sort of sexual assault questions and assumptions and all of that and they're they're not asking her she's trying to figure out what's going on and then they're and the cops are trying to figure out what's going on but i i noted that it sounded very indifferent mm-hmm. which is true to life as to how that would be handled so jay's kind of just like i don't really know what's going on and she goes about living her life she's in school at the university yeah and starts seeing this old lady in a hospital gown just like walking across the lawn at her which good choice yeah but also it was just like okay well fuck me i'm out of here yeah Fuck this shit, I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) So she gets so freaked out. She goes and talks to Paul and her sister at the the frozen yogurt or ice cream shop where they work. And they decide to all have a sleepover. And Paul is all too eager to have a sleepover with the ladies. Sex pest. These opportunistic men. Yeah, gross. So they're having the sleepover. Jay and her sister are together in her room. Yara is in another spot. Jay can't sleep. She goes downstairs to hang with Paul on the couch, but they hear a window break in the kitchen. Paul doesn't see anything, and suddenly Jay sees this woman who is bloodied and bruised and one tit hanging out of her bra. Dope. And peeing herself. Metal. I love it. That's how I like to wake up in the morning, assaulted and urinating. Fresh as a daisy. Yeah, it's so nice. Jay screams, runs upstairs, locks herself in the room. Paul is like, there's no one out here. I don't know what you're talking about. And he comes inside and she sees the thing again and slams the door. And so they're all in there and his, her sister and Paul can't figure out what's going on. And Jay's just freaking out. And they just hear not Yara knocking. She's Mm -hmm. like, what the fuck's going on guys? And then the giant from Twin Peaks shows up behind her and they drag her and shut the the door. The giant from Twin Peaks. Yeah. Jay just yeets herself out the window and runs away. Yeet. On her bike. Neighbor boy Greg, along with her friends, follow her to the park. And you get the great, like, long shot of not knowing who's approaching. Mm-hmm. Which this movie does a thousand times and it never gets old. Yeah. So they decide to go track down Hugh, who is actually Jeff. They track him to the trap house he had been camped out at. Mm. With all of the various, like, bottles and can alarms he had set around it. And for some reason, Paul decides to start thumbing through these crusty old playpins that Hugh, now yeah. Jeff, had. This scene is really strange. There's because a lot of we have, stuff in this. Because we have that male gaze shot. Yeah, of Greg looking at Yara trying to climb up and look through for stuff in the cabinet. Which just comes out of left field. Yeah, I don't really no understand, other ones really in this. I don't really understand what that's supposed to tell us. Is that just like supposed to confirm that Greg is straight or what? Like, Or that Greg's a lech maybe? Yeah, I don't... Because we see that later, and I think that that must be what it's trying to do, but it's not clear. Like, it is not... This is one part of the film that just does not work for me, where I'm like, why the fuck is this one male gaze shot in here? Yeah, there's a... That's really weird, and then the thumbing through the Playboy's a little weird, too. Yeah. Playpen, thank you. Oh, playpen. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Um, it's a very important difference. Clearly. I don't know what the difference is. I don't, I don't either. I don't go analog for my pornography, personally. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I don't love this scene. Nope. Not a fan. Very weird. It's good tension setting and it's good detective work, but it's it. There's a lot of weirdness in it that I just don't know what's what's happening for most of it. Agreed. But anyway, Paul finds a photo of who they think is Hugh at 
in his like Letterman jacket. They go, they track him to the high school. There's another freaky chase scene. Yeah. Or like, what is it a chase if they're walking at like a half step a second pace? Yeah, because they only walk. They don't run. Right. Don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't but know. But I'm going to call it a chase scene, whatever. They take off and go find him at his parents' house. He's freaked out and does not like being in the vicinity anywhere near Jay. He says he's sorry, but he's like, look, I, you know, you've got to keep moving and we shouldn't be in the same place. Oh, Just yeah, pass it on to somebody else. That's he what I He says did. that gross thing that's like, that's like, should be easy for you. You're, you're pretty. You're a girl. You're a girl. And like, yeah, he says something like that. And I was just like, ew. Yeah. But okay. Ew, Hugh slash Jeff. Hugh sucks. Ew. Paul sucks. <laughs> yeah. Greg sucks. And that's the only men in the movie, and they're all terrible. They decide, this this now crew of five decides to go hang out at Greg's, like, summer place, basically. Yeah. They have, like, a vacation house on the, on the lake. Yes. So they all go hang out up there. Greg teaches Jay how to shoot a gun. And they're all just, like, hanging out by the lake, and everything's chill, and Paul's jealous. And... We see what looks like Yara walking towards them. Yeah. And then suddenly Yara's in frame floating around in the lake being like, guys, come in. It's amazing in here. Oi. And suddenly everybody who hasn't been believing Jay believes Jay because they see her hair lift up out of nowhere. They see her get thrown from a chair. Paul smacks something invisible with a chair and gets knocked away and has these big lesions across his belly. Mm -hmm. The four of them minus Greg run and hide in like the boat shed or whatever Mm -hmm. where the gun is hidden and Jay just starts firing at this thing it does nail it right in the shoulder yeah and they get the door shut and bolted Greg's freaking out he's like what the fuck are you shooting at yeah where the fuck like what's going on and again Jay is just panicking like she that's what I mean I would do the same thing but that's what she does a lot in the film yeah she's either calm and trying to figure things out and depressed yeah or she's panicking yes so she finally it busts a hole through the door Greg tries to go around the side instead and then we see that creepy little boy just shove his face through Ugh, yeah they run again Jay takes off on her own steals the station wagon and crashes into a field of corn yes wakes up in a hospital broken arm cut on her head her family's there Greg we're comes like by. this bitch can't drive <laughs> this bitch cannot this drive. bitch cannot drive which we already knew because she bikes everywhere anyway. True. So she and Greg decide to have sex in the hospital bed. Hot. It's like, so hot. I've always wanted to have sex in a hospital bed. Definitely. It's a, it's a cute little scene, except it's not. It's kind of gross. No, it's definitely gross. She's, judging by her face, she's not she hates stoked. it. Yeah. Yeah. Greg just, like, doesn't believe that it's real. We see him flirting with other people, but... Yeah, never, he's kind of like... We get the confirmation that he's kind of a playboy. Yeah, and then we get the scene where he's like, well, it's been a few days. Haven't seen and anything. Haven't seen anything, so... And he, like, tries to go in and see Jay, and everybody else is like, nah, bro. She doesn't want to talk to anybody, especially you. Which I like that they kind of touch on that a little bit, because it does support the allegory for STIs with men being asymptomatic. Yeah. Which you softly brought up last night oh, when yeah, you were yeah. watching it, and I think that's a really valid point. Mm-hmm. That he doesn't notice anything for a while, and then suddenly it's there. Yeah. But they've also driven back. Like, it takes time for it to get places, because it walks everywhere. Like, I don't mm-hmm. think it can teleport or whatever. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Jay's kind of just, like, sitting up at night, and sees the the entity is what it's always referred to in like plot synopsis but we, it sees it trying yeah. to break into Greg's house 
tries to call him. He doesn't answer. So she runs over to warn him herself. She gets to the top of the stairs and it's his mom in a robe banging on his door very rhythmically. Yeah. And she's just like, Greg, don't answer. Greg, don't answer. Please don't answer. He does. And his mom's just there. Again, titty out. Titty out. And jumps on top of him and fucks him to death. And that's the first time we actually see it do its work. Yeah. Which going back to the first scene, that's why I made that made that point about like if she's so mangled then what happened you know yeah i think it's like it's a sort of i don't know it's like a very aggressive sexing it's a bad kama sutra could have also been um fighting back yeah there's a lot of yeah you know it's definitely and it just overpowered it's violent for sure so jay just takes the car again and flees back to the to the lake Mm mm-hmm she wakes up in the morning and sees these three dudes just on a boat and like undresses and just walks out into the lake mm-hmm. she comes back home paul's like well why don't you just fuck me i'll just i'll take we'll, we'll face it together this boy. sex pest this yeah. fucking sex pest she turns him down yeah she's like look i this is mine to deal with and i want to figure out a better way to deal with it than fucking you yeah because that's the last thing I want to do. Yeah. And he keeps reminiscing with her like, oh, yeah, you were my first kiss. And she's like, yeah. And then you immediately went and kissed my sister. I know. <laughs> yeah. You're a sex pest. He completely is. So Jay comes up with a solution of how to kill this thing. Yeah. And it's to go to this this giant like Olympic, Olympic-sized pool outside the city. Yeah. And they're going to have a bunch of electronics all plugged in, ready to go to throw into the water and try and electrocute it. And it turns out Paul's brought the revolver as well. Mm-hmm. And with using Jay as bait in the middle. Yes. And it works, essentially. I mean, there's a big scene here, but basically Jay's out in the middle of the water. No one can see anything. Everybody's hanging out. Jay is used as like a weird compass mm-hmm. or like demon detector. Yeah. Like, where is it? Where yeah. is it? Yeah. It gets in the water and starts attacking attacking her, throws a bunch of things at her head, a bunch of the electronics at her head and she catches her a couple times. Paul runs and grabs the gun and keeps trying to shoot it and shoots Yara in the fucking leg. Yeah. Because he's not paying attention. Kelly, her sister, has the great idea to throw a sheet over it, which I really appreciated. She's like the smartest one in the movie to me. Yeah. Her and Jay are the only two people who are intelligent about any of their decisions. Yep. (laughs) Eventually, Paul does end up killing it by shooting just over Jay's head. Yeah. So as far as we know, I should say. So she gets out of the water and they're like, oh, do you see it? Do you see it? Do you see it? And she stares in the water and we just get the big red cloud from mm-hmm. her point of view. But that's all we get. Slightly in the future, she and Paul do end up having sex. And then Paul drives through town and we see him pass a couple of sex workers on the streets. And then the last thing we see is Jay and Paul walking together down her block, holding hands. And there's a figure following behind them. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's the film. That's it. I really enjoy it. Yeah, I think it's, it's one a of my really, favorites. really, really well done well done film. I have I have so much to say about it. I don't even know where to begin. Um, we can start like sort of placing it in history a little bit, I guess. Like the significance of what this movie is. Got it. To the genre. So there was a cracked article from a few years ago that I remember reading okay. that I really, really enjoyed that was talking about this new genre of horror because mm-hmm. they were what they pointed out is that this is a whole new genre that we haven't really seen in a long time. It's a reference to old horror in that it's an allegory. It's a morality play yes. for the specific genre type. Definitely. But it's a little different than the old ones, and it's new. And so they called it an allegory. Right. Yeah. Gore. Get it? Ha ha ha. It's cute. Enough. So this was kind of the one that kicked a lot of that off. Because mm-hmm. in the... I think Babadook was the first okay. of this sort of new genre. But then we got 
It Follows, we got The Vavitch, we got Get Out, mm-hmm. Us. I mean, we've seen a number of these types of films now. Yeah. That are more allegorical in the nature of the thing that they're about. Yes. Babadook's about grief. This is about sex and the consequences thereof to some yeah. degree. Get Out, it's obviously about race. The Witch is about the power of women mm-hmm. and people pushing back against that. So there is, I mean, a, among a, amongst a number of, number of other themes, but it's a cool thing that we've kind of gotten now. Mm-hmm. And I really, really appreciate what it's done because this was kind of on the tail end of all of the, not the tail end, but coming off of all of these major big budget horror films that we've talked about that neither of us really particularly enjoy. The Haunted House genre is what I call it. Like the big production. Production mm-hmm. of it all. Yeah, this is more stripped away and a little bit more, it's a little more cerebral just because of the allegory, I yeah. would say. You know, it it, it, may, it doesn't shove it right in your face. Like these, you know, big productions of just like, you don't really have to think about it mm-hmm. at all. You know, I, I wish I could come up with like more of like a clear example, but like Haunted House is really great. Um, where like they're showing you everything. They're yeah. spoon feeding it to you. And this, an allegory film is a little different than that mm-hmm. because you have to kind of deconstruct it and think about what it is really about and maybe what it's about to you. Because to me, what this movie is about and how I interpreted it is, mm-hmm. or maybe just what stood out to me the most, I'm not sure, is the whole movie is her grappling with this thing that she has to do. But she feels so bad about passing it on to someone else. Yeah, she's the only one with a conscience. Yes, but her male predecessor of this thing had no time to grapple, at least in this film. Yeah. And that's just how I have to believe it exists. I mm-hmm. can't give him a be- the benefit of the doubt because we don't see him, like, worried about this. She says to her sister, like... Like, no, we haven't had sex yet, but, like, I know he wants to. Yeah. So he's clearly been pushing for it. He hasn't been, or at least, like... Hinting at it. Hinting at it. Yeah. Like, but it's not... He's not shying away from the idea of it or pushing her away because he cares about her. Yeah. He wants to get this thing off of his back, but he doesn't want... He's probably just smart about it and isn't, like... he, He isn't... I don't know. See, I think if he were smart about it, he would just one night stand his way through Detroit. Yeah, but I'm just kind of, like... Because by give like the whole reason he gets caught and like the whole reason that they're able to find him is because he does leave behind some information to her. Yeah. Well, I guess what I mean by smart about it is that she's not. I guess he's like if he's already with her, he ha- he can't just be like we're having sex. Like he doesn't w- he doesn't want to he doesn't want to rape her. Sure. But I he, guess that makes sense. Yeah. He wants to do something yeah. terrible as well. Yes. You know. So. He's he's playing it smart in the way that he's like, you know, we're going to do it like when the time's right, but he's pushing mm-hmm. the time to be right. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's that, he wants which, to move the date up. Yeah. Which is a similar undercurrent to most teenage or early 20s sexual experience, right? You've got like the guy can say, you know, or the girl can say like, you know, we'll wait until the time is right. But you can kind of tell when someone's pushing it or really wanting it. Yeah. And you feel this undercurrent of pressure. And I think a lot of people give into that when not knowing if they want to do it or not. Sure. Because they're just like, oh, like, can we move on from this? Yeah. I think it's because I, I don't read her as being upset by him wanting to. 
you know? No, she's not. And it, it she she seems it, it's consensual. Yeah, the it's, sex is consensual, and they ask yeah. her that. The cops even ask her that, and she says, "Yes, it was." Yeah, I want to. I want to make that super clear that I know that <laughs> that it is consensual. But the whole point I'm making here is that she spends the entire movie worried about giving it to someone else. Yes, he ain't worried. Right, he just gave it to her, someone who he quote unquote like cares about, or like has at least been dating her long enough to want it. Like he wants to spend time with her. He yeah, cares and, like, that her much. Sister about her. likes him. Yeah, so he's been around for at least a little bit. Mm-hmm. Which also leads me to believe, like, where did he get it? When did he get it? He you says know? something about going to a bar and having a one-night stand before this. Okay. And he thinks that that's where it happened. So he has to have been... It, it, he's had it for less than a year because he's 21. So then they've been dating for... Because he didn't cheat on her. Or at least that's not explicit. I think they had just started dating. Like, that's that's why they hadn't had sex yet. Is because it was like, it. This was, like, their third or fourth date or something like that. This was not, yeah. like, that far in. It's just... That's the message that I receive from this movie yeah is how 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 men kind of treat their sexuality and how that's tied to their morals and how women treat their sexuality and how it's tied to their morals Mm -hmm. because i can't tell you how many how many stories i've heard of just like um either men don't know they have something and they pass it on because they haven't gotten tested yeah um or and they're asymptomatic or whatever or even if they do have symptoms and they just don't get tested and don't tell anyone or like it goes away or you know whatever but it's all willy-nilly and that's usually how women get it is because these men like they don't tell them yeah or they don't know or they lie about it and and just from my experience and my friends experiences women want to sit down and have that talk yeah. If they have something to share before they're intimate, which let's be real, it's 2020. I think everyone has something that they need to share before they get intimate. <laughs> like if you've if if you're if you are in your 20s, your late 20s especially and beyond and you've experienced life and sex, more likely than not you're going to have to have something to tell whoever you're oh, going to sure. get intimate with. Yeah. It's just the way of life. It's just it's it's unfortunate but it's just how it goes but mm-hmm. that was a really roundabout way of saying that that is the clear message that i get is that men don't care as much <laughs> yeah. no it's funny too because like in my experience it's always been like the first time i went to go get tested was with a friend with a male friend yeah go in like, groups guys yeah it's like <laughs> i don't know we both have sex with multiple partners so why don't we just go get tested that's what i mean that's that's what women do it i mean well we we get tested because we go to the gynecologist and yeah you can and i think that's part of it is ask, that women have a little more access to regular testing yeah and that men don't have that like i don't go see a urologist once a year right they just yeah because the gynecologist just you know does does the thing right and you can ask for you know further testing or whatever if you think you have something that they don't already test for but which i know i know that they do not test for herpes unless you ask right or unless you've had symptoms which mm-hmm. i think is a complete mistake but i guess yeah. they have their reasons maybe the tests are expensive or few and far in between i don't know but anyway so we've talked about this a little bit, and it's been discussed in a number of other forums nearly to death, but I think it's interesting and pertinent to this film. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to the the trade game scene. Okay. People talk about the consequences of sex, right? And what they are along standard or perceived gender lines. Yes. And it's interesting to me that Hugh Jeff, 
mm-hmm. picks the little kid because it's there's a couple ways to read this and there's the sort of straightforward one that we've already given and then there's the that we can dive into a little bit more and then there's the a slightly more charitable one okay because i hadn't had this thought about that until last night until we just rewatched it last night for like the like fifth sixth time for me so he picks the little kid but she guesses the dad first yeah when he points out he yeah. like gestures at the family and she goes to the dad and he goes no the kid it's interesting i wonder if there's a switch there i you know maybe i'm reading too far into this but if he picks the kid right it's because he was just wishes he had never ha- he had never made the mistake right right which is not the same thing as regretting his actions that he is still going to take with her right yeah mm-hmm. he's like well that was my life that was my life in the before times this is my life in the now na- in the now times yeah but gotta make do or whatever mm-hmm. and survive but there's a th- second thought to that which is men typically see and I, I don't mean to discuss this in a full gender binary but i'm just trying to go with like sort of ease of conversation here and what we are given in the film right in the world of the film we're given pretty much a gender gender binary yeah and that's all that's all you can uh, that's exactly what i was i was saying that i can only judge it on the two hours that we're given and you know what is set in the film and set in the world yeah so yes so in the heteronormative gender binary that we have in here yeah it's interesting that the consequences one of the consequences you, you think about this is it is also a consequence of a lot of STIs is the difficulty in having children later on. A lot mm-hmm. of STIs can either cause infertility or can be passed to children mm-hmm. through contact. Yeah. So that would be by giving birth for the for women. So it's typically viewed that like, oh, what a woman has lost when she has an STI is children. He also seems to feel no shame about it. Shame enough to hide it from her, but he not shame enough to like not have sex with her. Like if a woman had like I'm gonna talk straight up about an STI right now. Yeah. If a man has it, it's very common that they won't they're not ashamed of it enough to take precautions. Take or, precautions. Mm-hmm. But women typically this is all under the umbrella of typically. Women typically are so ashamed of it because we're we're told if we have sex with multiple partners, we're sluts. Sure. But it, it's all the slut shaming, all of that. Mm-hmm. And the men Absolutely. are high fived. Right. Right. So they're like, they're like, yeah, I ran the risk and I got it. But that just means that like, I have a lot of sex and I'm super cool. Yeah. I lost to the law of averages. But, and it's kind of the same thing if a woman gets pregnant too. A woman's mm-hmm. like, sex carries so many negative consequences especially for women and i think that ugh. <laughs> yeah it's yeah so i think that that scene has dual meanings at it is it is basically what i want to say i think i'm retracting the former point that he might have thought he wanted to be the dad i think it's that we're getting the direct point of he only cares about making the mistake not making this mistake again he just wants to go back to the before time exactly and he she only, is losing he only cares about himself right is I what think, you're saying well, yeah right and, and i think that there's a secondary underlying point there that she is losing the family as well to a certain degree yeah right yeah if that, does that make sense i think so yeah if she whether or not she wants it she's losing the access to it yeah the choice because is being made what, for her because because yes that's exactly it. That's the choice, what, that's what I'm trying the to get choice is ma- being made for her. And that's the unfair part. Yes. And the unfair part, too, is... And, and also just an unanswered question that is outside of this movie. Um, is what happens if she does get married and 
has what happens to the children of whoever has sex with whoever has this yeah and then they have children one of your parents is gonna die or has to go cheat on your mother yeah or father whatever yeah whatever it ends up being um which also gets into we were joking about this a little bit like it it's a best it's a movie that's not best looked at too hard in certain places but like what counts as sex is oral sex yeah is gay sex sex is yeah is it only penetrative is it can it be like what what where are the lines yeah and i think it's i we were talking about like we kind of think that it's that's the point is that there are no loopholes yeah insofar as whatever this demon decides is sex is Is sex sex. so you're either monk nun or yeah so i also asked the question of this movie um what is is after you have is after you have have sex for the uh, first time, and it, it's not explicit. It, mm-hmm. It's it's probably not these people's first time. I mean, it's obviously not the guys, but we also we don't get the like nerves and the conversation that a typical woman would have in one of these films if it was going to be her first time. Yeah, she seems like she's done it. She's you know, she's not nervous about it. She's not. No, we know. don't get a traditional virginal sort of sense we get yeah. a lot of well, we'll talk about that we have a whole section about that but yeah we, we don't get the very traditional like i'm so nervous about my first time i want it to be perfect like we, we yeah. get like we kind of yeah and it's not even that everyone's always nervous about their first time a lot of people are very excited about their first time but we we just you you get the sense in the lines that it's not her first yeah, time. all of the all of the body language all of the lines but the question is is like is this movie trying to say that after you've had sex are you in this like purgatory or like i'm just trying to like sort out the message here yeah is it i mean obviously i get that like sex can have consequences and all of that and and you need to communicate with your partner and you need to be you do need to be have fun but be safe right Mm -hmm. have like do whatever you want but be kind to other people and be safe for their own good and your own good right but I'm just trying to figure out if there's another message there. I'm not sure. So I know that in one interview I read with David Robert Mitchell is that I think it was he, he was relaying a similar story to what he had talked about, that this would, had come from a dream. Yes. And therefore he was talking about why this movie was, a, was set in a place outside of time. And we're going to take a little bit of a walk here, but I'm going to bring it back as soon as I can. Got you. So... He's talked about the movie needing to be in a place outside of time and using the particular cinematography and uh, filters and lenses and gobos and all that stuff that he used because the film needed to operate with a certain dream logic. They do a good job of setting it in a random time because the technology isn't really even set. Like that weird pocket reader that yeah, the um, Yara has, reader, the clamshell, yeah. which super cute yeah. love it very mermaid um <laughs> and but like they do a really good job because they've kind of created their uh, there might be a cell phone in there I, I just don't remember i don't remember seeing any cell phones there's landlines but there's laptops but the the cars are old but the fashion's inconsistent yeah like the little sister is like a gen z lesbian yeah but and then we just and then even in jay her- is like very much our age looking I mean, yeah. in, in her dress. And is wearing puka shells. Yeah. You know, like Which very... Which is something that people our age did when we were... When we were, yeah, yeah, younger. But yeah, so they do a really good job on a lot of ends of confusing us about that. So it's telling us that it's in no set time. And yeah, there's the dream logic. So Yeah. And so that's what I mean to say is that like this is a... 
this works really well as an allegory as long as you don't start peeling back layers because I think it's it's like Nightmare on Elm Street. It has yeah. to function on dream logic. Yeah. And using these sort of hazy filters that are throughout it, using these really saturated but muted at the same time yeah. colors. That's a really good point, the dream logic. That yeah, like that's a really good point. That's such an easy excuse, but it, it clearly is intentional in this. I mean he yes, said he said yes. as much and I think that it It stemmed from a dream and he ran with that. Exactly. I think he, he found the reasoning later, and it's one of those, I'm very opposed to not knowing how your own thing works and how, having it be internally consistent until it gets to this movie, because this movie just works, because mm-hmm. it's an emotional, it's, you know, it's tone. Yeah. It's a tone poem sort of situation thing. Yeah. Like, it's not about, it's not a sci-fi film. You yeah. don't need, it's not Star Trek, the, the internal, consist, or like Arthur C. Clarke or whatever, like any of these like hard sci-fi people, it doesn't have to be internally consistent. Yeah. It's more... I guess, yeah, in the sci-fi thing, it's more Star Wars than Star Trek. Yes. It's fantasy, so the things just work because the Force. The things just work because that's how the demon works. Yeah, because I had the question, too, about the chain. Yeah. It's kind of backwards, because if it's an allegory for, like, Mm -hmm. HIV-AIDS, if it kills the last person you had sex with, like, you would die first because of how that... uh, uh, syndrome and disease like progresses right right like so so I was asking that question but I think it's kind of like jokes on you sort of thing like don't ask questions yeah. because it, it is what all like dream nerd yeah <laughs> exactly it's like I think it is all just dream logic and that's what makes it work yeah. honestly yeah because you don't um was it it was mom and dad that I was saying, like, you don't always have to ask questions. Exactly. Or you don't always have to have them answered. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's okay. Yeah. And I think that this is another good example of that um, because it is set out of time. It is in, um, yes, it's in Detroit, but it's in a different world of Detroit. It's in, it's, it, it's someone dreaming in Detroit absolutely. and having what turns into a nightmare very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, between yeah, yeah it, and it definitely looks like present day Detroit, but it doesn't look exactly like present day Detroit. It could be, you know, which Detroit is from consistent. 30 years ago. Yeah, which is consistent with a dream. I always say that dreams are, it it always stems from your consciousness. So it stems from like things that you already know. Your mm-hmm. brain is like giving you a movie itself, and then it kind of throws in something weird, right? Yeah. Like it throws in like I've never seen that. I've never seen this person. Like. Right. I've never been inside this store, but it kind of looks like my grandma's house. Like it's, you know, like it's <laughs> like one of those weird things. Like grandma houses in this too. Yeah, yeah, they do. Um, so, so I think that's that's a really good point to bring up. Yeah, I thank think it's you. Just, no, not at all. <laughs> I just report things that I read and sometimes things that I think of, like this. So while we're still moving through themes, I, we were talking last night that what this something this movie does very competently is depict the invisibility of violence against women. Yes. So just to sort of lay out the argument real fast, initially, no one believes Jay. Yeah. And they don't believe her in two directions, but we'll just go with the first one first. No one believes Jay that she's being haunted by a sex demon because it's invisible to all who have not slept with Jay. Yes. Or one of Jay's down the chain of previous partners. Yeah. So no one believes her because it's invisible, right? The first God, victim we see. <laughs> Sorry, I just I just got back to all of rape culture. Yeah, like, <sighs> which is what we're diving into. Yay! Yeah, that. Ju- I mean, fuck. Okay. Yeah, it's a heavy. Yeah, it's a heavy. Uh, it's heavy. Um, 
So the first victim we see in the movie is a woman. Yes. Running from something invisible. Mm-hmm. No man to be seen. She calls her dad, but that's mm-hmm. it. The first few iterations of it that Jay sees are women. Mm-hmm. It's a woman in the Packard plant. It's a woman crawling through the window of the kitchen. It's Yara until it's the man. Yeah. The giant. That's the, the giant. first time mm-hmm. we see one. And it uses Yara like a Trojan horse. Yes, it does. So it's it and then so that's that's the sort of like no one believes her. And then no one believes her until they see proof of it. Symptoms, we could say. Of her like at the beach with her hair coming up and Paul whacking an invisible thing. Yeah, and nobody back. nobody wants to believe a woman until there is physical proof, which right. sucks so bad. Yeah, we could name a certain two presidential candidates for this year, but we don't need to. Yeah, you guys probably know already. <laughs> yeah. Um so you brought up this point when we were talking about this during the movie is that it demonstrates that alienation of being a woman who has suffered sexual abuse or violence, etc. and yes. how isolating that can be. It's completely isolating because and people love to gaslight you. People mm-hmm. love to tell you that you're crazy, that you're making all of this shit up. And it's so isolating. And that's that what I will say to to uh, the credit of her friends Mm -hmm. is that, yeah, they don't believe her, but at least they stick by her and try to help her. That is one thing that I will say um, is a a positive about this, because um, I think if if they didn't, then we wouldn't have much of a movie. It would be more of a court drama because she would try to. You, you know yeah, what I mean? Like, yeah. it would take a different turn if these friends didn't band together and say, like, well, uh, we'll give her the benefit of the doubt. Like, I, I really don't understand what's going on, but we're going to stick by her yeah. and get a gun and try to, like, get rid of this thing because she's clearly freaked out. Yeah. Um, So I will that 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 but, good on them. But to that, no yeah. one believes her that it was that she wasn't raped. Which is very interesting. No, that is interesting because it kind so of... she says it's consensual, but Paul doesn't believe her. Greg doesn't believe her. Her sister is probably the only one who really does, but even then has, like, doubts. So even when they see the evidence of it, they're like, well, you couldn't have gotten this. And so it really gets into that, like, Madonna horror complex mm-hmm. of, like, well, even if she slept somebody, she had to have done it purely. And she would never have had sex with someone unpure. And it's, like, this whole, like, purity nonsense mindset. Yeah, which is, does again... Does that make sense? Yeah, which is again why I mean, the costuming from like a, um, uh, from like my standpoint, obviously like it's hideous. But there are two scenes in the movie mm-hmm. where she's wearing like a very virginal dress, right? Yes. And it's like right after it happens to her, she's wearing like she's wearing like no clothes. Or she's wearing she her fashion switches, but then right. well we get the change from one piece bathing suit to bikini. Yeah, we get all these like minor things that are supposed to like because she starts wearing black hoodies, and short shorts, right? As opposed to these like uh, Pepto Bismol pink um, <laughs> little Easter dresses, and then right. um, and it's like it's kind of. I want to say that it's with the dream logic um, veil over it. I want to say that it's her own internal, like how she feels about herself. Because when you contract an STI or something, like let's just keep going on that train, right? Sure. 
you're the one who feels shame for yourself. You feel yeah. you feel like you've done something bad. You feel like you've done something bad and then you are suffering the consequences of it and that you are a bad person because that you, you did that. This. That yeah. you deserve this. You, you brought it on yourself. And I'm wondering if, or like maybe she feels like she, I think a lot of, uh, because of society, which is complete bullshit, um, a lot of women feel like they're like, they're the slut because that's what we've been told. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I almost wonder if it's an internalized thing. Like she goes from wearing all of that and switches very harshly into a completely different wardrobe. And then by the end of the movie, she's wearing like a white Yeah, she's dress. wearing a white one, yeah. It's white, yeah. Um, so we've kind of gone back to the beginning and she's wearing the one piece again. Yeah. So I don't even, I don't know if it's other people, I don't think it's other people's like view of her. Maybe it is. To me, with the dream logic, I think it might be internalized. Well, I mean, it's definitely Paul's view of her. Ugh. Paul. Yeah. Yeah. Can we talk about him for just a second? Yeah. He. Yeah. So Paul. So Paul. Um, he falls into this trope that we've seen in 80s movies. We've seen in current movies. We've seen in all of these movies. It's very like. Pride and Prejudice. Pretty in Pink. Ducky. Is that his name in Pretty yeah. in Pink? Um, it's that friend who's just waiting for his window. <sighs> waiting for the girl to be single or waiting for um, a vulnerable moment. He's a real John Cusack. He is. Completely. And... Anthony Michael Hall. And this is a really weird version of it. But again, hashtag dream logic, I guess. Um, it's a weird ver- version of it where... For a second, you think like, oh, my God, that's so chivalrous. Like, he's going to take the sick away. But then you're like, no, I know. But then but then you're like, wait, you're like, wait a minute. This guy wants to have sex with her or wants to have sex in general so bad that he a little desperate right yeah he just pesters her am i viewing that right no i think so yeah (laughs) the nice guy yeah the nice guy trope right is what we're talking about to put a name to it the very close best friend yes um the guy who was there all along you never saw because you were just out there right in front of your eyes like that sort of shit so it comes up a lot in like these incel communities it comes up a lot in like just general sort of nerd culture that the guy who really was good for you wasn't the big hunky beefcake. It was the nerd. And it's a writer insert, right? Like this is the writer inserting author insert or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Inserting themselves into a character being like, see the pretty girl does want the fucking nerd. Right. Like trying to, yeah, it's some weird like fantasy thing from their high school experience. And, um, yeah, because I mean, if, if, if we want to give him a more charitable position, Maybe he represents like STIs aren't a big deal. Like as long as you communicate about it and like it, because someone by has the end of the film, something, maybe, maybe. Yeah, that that's what I'm. I'm trying to look at both sides of the coin here, yeah, yeah, or what fair. maybe was intended. I'm not sure, but um, if you want to be charitable towards Paul, um, maybe he's representing that. Shut up, Paul. <laughs> Sorry, I won't stop making that reference. Um. Maybe he's representing, like, that people who contract something shouldn't be, like, put on an island, a sexless yeah, island, yeah. right? Or, like... They don't need to... Yeah. That, like, it's like it's going to be fine sort of thing. Mm-hmm. 
that like these people should still be desirable. They should like maybe that is what the intention was, but I don't know. I'm it's trying to look to, at the positive side. It's hard side. to argue for him though. And here's so I'm just thinking about the analysis. Just trying to break break this down the analysis, right? Yeah. And like and how the trope typically works. So the trope typically works that either in, in sort of two broad strokes either you have the friend who was there all along and treats you nice and after the mean jock dumps you you hook up with the the nerd who really knows everything about you yeah he knows what color lipstick you wear he knows what your favorite band your favorite is. slushy flavor like yeah, yeah shit like that and so you have the one who's like waiting in the wings which is like the cuckold type, basically. Yeah, <laughs> which we've it, again, it's like some writer fantasy that yeah. like we've we've been told to believe. Mm-hmm. Oh, it fucked me up bad. And I'm it just, fucked me up real bad. <laughs> and I'm just like, I'm just like, oh, guys, find find someone who cares about you as well. Don't be like waiting for your hot popular friend. Yeah, like just chill. The other version, though, is the sex reward, right? Yeah, treating sex as a finish line. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we kind of get both of those in here. And I think Paul is a combination of both. And because he's such a strong combination of both, I wonder if that's a critique and not a use of the... I think that's my ultimate question. If it's a mention of the trope, not a Mm -hmm. use of the trope. Yeah. So because Paul... So she doesn't fuck Paul until... After he has saved her life. Yes. And she refuses to sleep with him before they go to the pool, even though it would have been really fucking useful to do that. Because then he could have seen it and been able to shoot it. And she would have too. And yeah. And she's, I think, a better shot than he is. (laughs) I would assume so. So I think, I can't tell because she is holding hands with him at the end, even though they're, as they walked in the lane. They do have way longer sex than Paul would have ever had because Paul is clearly a virgin, right? Oh, yeah, we did mention this last night where, where we were like two seconds later and then Paul it was... Paul is one pump, one cream for sure. Oh, God. He is just like a hazelnut creamer. Ew. Anyway. But yeah, I guess I guess that's my question is if it's like a, a mention of it or a use of it. I feel or like it's like got critique. A, it's hard to know. say because and, and it feels like mention because of how crisp it is in the trope and how good the rest of the movie is on a lot of these issues. Yeah. But because he gets her as a reward and he's been chasing her and fucking sex pesting her the whole goddamn movie. He gets from what he the wants. Jump, yeah, he gets what he wants as a reward for helping her out. And we don't know because he passes by the two sex workers. It's right. not really answered whether he hires one of them. I think he can't. I think that it's an idea that goes through his head, but I think that there, the I way he cruises right. past, the fact yeah. that he doesn't stop, that he cruises past is meant to be the he does not hire them i think that's right um it's i think it's left intentionally ambiguous so you can have that moment Mm -hmm. but i don't i don't think that he believes that he could do that he sees that as a dirty vile act it also shows his disregard for sex workers which rude sex workers are workers too yeah they work hard they're great fully support them fully support so yeah, I think moreover, and here's here's the second thing I'll say on him, and, and it plays into this whole again the Madonna horror dichotomy. That's a, a fucking false dichotomy, but whatever. So Sarah and Kelly, or sorry, Yara and Kelly are talking when they're playing uh, cards on the porch and drinking together, and they're like, "Oh yeah, your sister's so pretty. It's annoying." She's like, "Yeah, it is annoying." And Paul interjects, "And nice too," as if that's something that pretty women wouldn't be. 
Yeah. So again, I think that this is, I, it has to be use, right? Or mentioned, I, sh- I should say. It has to be mentioned, right? Yeah. Because, because as a viewer, you don't like Paul. No. You don't. I, I don't think, you, I don't see how you could. Exactly. They don't not give in 2015. You, they don't give you any reason to. So I think, I think I'm coming to that same conclusion that it's mm-hmm. a mention. Yeah, it's hard to say. It's it's really tough because Greg's a piece of shit too. I think it's just that all the men are shit in this. I they think really that are. that's what I come down to is that there are no good men in this movie. No. There's three of not. them and they all suck. Yeah, for different reasons yeah. too. All com- yeah, all completely different types. You have mm-hmm. the dog who is doing his like you have the like kind of middle guy in here, right? He's a bit of a dog, but he's just trying to be like, look, I got to preserve myself. But, you know, he's going to warn her about what's going on. Yeah. After he's done it. It's also like guys doing it's a weird conscience that some men have that, like, if they do one thing right, they can do something else that's bad. And, and they it's think good and bad are a ledger sheet. Yeah, exactly. And and that's that's that, just a really strange imbalance that I've seen in so yeah. many partners that I've had. Yeah. Where I don't have, get it. Right. But then you have Greg who's just straight up like, whatever, fuck it, you're cool. But he's like the traditional just like fuck boy. Yeah. Yeah, or he's supposed to represent that, yeah. And then Paul represents the nice guy. The ducky. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's it's tough to say what this exactly what this movie's view on men is but i think it's negative i think it has to be because paul's not paul doesn't get that like if if i don't know Kira gilchrist would be the wrong cast for a ducky type like john cryer's attractive yeah and charming yeah Kira gilchrist is kind like i can see where someone would think he was cute but he is not charming there is zero charm on him yeah he looks like a fucking wet noodle right yeah, I I think it's got to be I think it's got to be a negative negative view mm-hmm. on on men and how they how they deal with how they sometimes deal with the hand they've been dealt. Yeah. Due to their own actions. Um Yeah. I I mean we know how Paul sees himself. He definitely sees himself as a knight in shining armor and every oh, other dude sure. sucks. Every other dude's a Chad or a Brad, so to speak. Yeah, and I but, I kind of hate that she's holding hands with him at the end because I don't think I that do she too. needed I don't think she needed him. No. To save her. You know? Yeah. But I don't know if she knew that. Because it's for security afterwards too, from her point of view, I think. Mm-hmm. And since she's our protagonist, I think that's where we can say that this is a that Paulism is a trope, not yeah. intended to be an actual good guy. Yeah. Because she uses I him, think that's right. Sort I think of that's at the right. end. Yeah. She's giving him what he wants, but she's getting security out of it. That's true. That's true. And that credits her a little bit. And I, I, I do like that narrative. Looked like you killed it, but I'm not sure. Yeah. So maybe you'll stop sex pesting me if I toss you a little little shtup. Oh, my God. So I guess the last thing we just sort of wanted to talk about was cinematography and how great this is. Yeah. So we talked a little bit up top about this, but I'm just going to dive in a little bit more and get into the technical. I think it's a nice note to end on after so much talk of rape culture and... Yeah, uh, this is a nice um horrible man. Yeah, this is a nice light note to end on because mm-hmm. we've I mean we've just got some incredible shots here. There's one when it's clearly in in the dream it's clearly like a fall day because mm-hmm. the leaves have changed and it's this long road that's just lined with all Fuck these yeah, gorgeous the trees. You can see for miles sort of thing and um 
it's it's pretty breathtaking. Like whoever, Shout out to whoever the location scout was in yeah, this film, they did yeah. a goddamn good job. That's a hard job too. Yeah. So the couple that I wanted to point out were the opening shot, which we already talked about. Yeah. And how just straight up third act of Halloween that is. Mm-hmm. There's another couple of really great shots, and I just want to point to where the influences were in this. Greg and Jay go into the high school mm-hmm. to figure out who Jeff really is, who was formerly Hugh. Yeah. There's this really amazing circled shot. So it's this, it's one long take. Yeah. Where that's unbroken. And basically the camera swings around about 540 degrees, I think. Mm-hmm. And you get this full pan. And in the background, you can consistently see someone getting closer. Yeah. As they swoop in. And it finally ends on a, a seamless zoom into Greg and Jay learning who Jeff is. Yeah. Fantastic. Very, very Carpenter shot. Very yeah. 80s shot in general. Mm-hmm. You pointed out the rear window shot in the hospital, which was really well done. Yeah. Because it's focusing on the all these vignettes from the hospital while Jay's there. And it finally ends up focusing on Jay and Greg in the bed. Yeah. Yeah. That That's a really, really cool shot. And um, it's a really long, and, unbroken uh, shot, too, for this film that has not a lot of cuts, but. Yeah. Yeah, I I was very impressed by that one, and I think um, a reason that I have so much fun talking about uh, cinematography when it comes to this genre is mm-hmm. that this is one of those. This is one of the few. This is one of the genres that it can really be used to give you a certain feeling. Right. Like if we're you can talk about a a comedy or a romantic comedy or whatever. You're not really the cinematography is there for you to maybe not notice it. It's supposed to make it look good, but that's that's their job. It's just bunches of double reverses, essentially. Like all all romantic comedies can be broken down to about three shots. And it's wide in the street, Mm -hmm. double reverse conversations, uh, single zooms on emotional speeches yeah and this is not to discredit centered and maybe once in a while with a cool little third effect yeah and this is not to discredit anyone who works on those genres at all it is uh, but i'm just saying that by the nature yeah exactly by the nature of that genre you don't want to know that they're there in a sense Mm -hmm. but when you're talking in a horror context it is used as such an important tool Right, your DP is can, as important, if not more important, important than your director and your writer. Yeah, because I've seen bad scripts made good by good cinematography. Exactly, because it can be used to disorient you. Mm-hmm. It can be used to um, obviously scare you, like <laughs> like a good jump scare or something like that. It can be used to convey so many things that would that wouldn't have the same merit as um, if it was just spoon fed to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, if I were a cinematographer, I would be honored to work on a horror film. It's got to be like a creative fantasy, right? It has to be. I mean, I know a number of my friends who do photography, cinematography work. That's the goal. Like they got into, most of my friends who got into cinematography got into it because of either 70s filmmakers or horror filmmakers. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, it's it's it takes on a new artistic life form when it's such a tool that directors rely on. Yeah. And it's telling how much this guy knew his shit. Uh, yeah. Mike Giolakis. Mm-hmm. So he was saying that he 
he told he said what he used to shoot the film and i was wondering why this film cost two million yeah it's not a two million dollar film until you look at what they did to get the cinematography the way it was right so they shot on this will mean something to about five of you um they (laughs) shot roughly about 90 percent of the film using Ari alexa cameras can you, so, for, yeah, for yes. the folks at home yes. and me who honestly does not know what that means. So an Ari Alexa is like the high budget film camera. Yeah. If you've ever seen behind the scenes footage of like an Avengers film or any like any big tent film, mm-hmm. you'll have seen these. And I'll, in fact, I'll just show you a photo of what I'm talking about right now for the rig. Okay. So it is a portable rig. In a lot of cases, they can be mounted or they can be steady cams, mm-hmm. but it is easily one of the most expensive cameras on the market. So, for example, the year of this film, yeah, the year this was shot, uh, the XT model cost between sixty-six to a hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars. That's not a cheap camera. No, I mean that's the cost of mo- of any. Like we, we were talking about Pi Wacket the other day. Yeah, Pi Wacket was shot for the total of that. 166 grand is how much it took to shoot that entire movie. Yeah. Half of its over half of its budget would go to this camera. Yeah. So, I explains where the 2 where the 2 million dollar uh, came from. So, the other cool bits of it, just like this is just cool nerd shit for me, but just knowing what they shot it on is really cool to me. So, yeah, that's that's like a big rig that you have to use and it's heavy and difficult to carry around. That's why you use it on these big budget films where they're mostly shot on green screen. Mhm. So you're not having to like move these cameras around all the time. So it's really crazy that they had all of these big carpenter follow shots using this. Yeah. They also used a smaller rig for some of the. So yeah, if you want to shoot a film like It Follows, you can use Ari Alexis, which will run you a pretty fucking penny, or you can use the Red Epics for their smaller shots. Uh, they also used Cook uh, Optics S4s lenses, 18 millimeter, 18 millimeter lenses, 18 millimeter lenses. Um, and all of this stuff is just so cool because it ended up getting him the nomination for Best Cinematography at the Independent Spirit Awards. Did he win? No. But hey, yeah. to be nominated, he, I mean, I don't know who won that year, but um, incredible job. Yeah. It's, I think it's just. I'm surprised he didn't win. I, again, don't know what actually did, but I really appreciated the cinematography in this movie. Yeah. Um. So yeah, was there any other points you wanted to touch up on or touch on today? I think that about covers what I really wanted to get into. I mean, there's all this movie could be dug into for ages and ages. I'm, yeah, we're gonna see a whole bunch of theses written on this movie. For, I think so. Like film students. Um, yeah. I mean, I highly recommend it for for that reason. Um, but again, it might just be like a. Uh, it's it's fun to dive into these uh, films, but it might be like another mom and dad type film where it's like you can ask questions but like you're probably not going to get the answers or the answers you get are probably going to be a little unsettling which is fine i i think a good piece of art is something that makes you ask questions yeah I that's always what that. i it's something that makes you want to watch it again if it's a movie tv um visual medium mm-hmm. um makes you want to watch it again and only presents new questions every time yeah whether that was intended by anyone um who was involved in the making of it i don't think that really matters i think it's how we as humans interpret it through the lenses of our own experience and all of that and i that's why i think this this movie is going to live on for a very long time yeah is because there, i mean it already has you know like um how many years has it been again it's been about five 
about five. Yeah, and people are still talking about it. People are still like Quentin Tarantino's talking about how he could have made it better. Fuck off. <laughs> it's really, it's actually there really funny. Sufficient numbers. There's a sufficient number of bare feet in this film, and that's the only thing he was gonna say is more close-ups on the feet. Hilarious. Okay, and on that note, we are going to sign off here. You know where to find us. Um, we are Horror Babes Podcast on Instagram, Horror Babes Pod on the Twitter, and we are HorrorBabesPod.com. I think I said that incorrectly in a previous episode, and I apologize. Hopefully, you have found us anyway. We are HorrorBabesPod.com. Dot com. All right. I'm Nicole. I'm Topher. Until next time. Bye, bye babes. babes. Don't fuck a sex demon.